When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, friends, and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Avril Earls, and I will be your host for this episode. Today, we'll be talking to Sonia Tiernan about her 2020 book, Marriage Equality in Ireland, A Social Revolution Begins. Sonia Tiernan, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Avril. Delighted to be here. Uh, we're coming from quite the the time distance here. I'm in Buffalo, New York, and you're in New Zealand. Yeah, I know. So I'm, I'm really I'm really grateful that you were able to take the time and we're able to sort of sync up here a bit. So um, it's going to be a pleasure to chat with you. I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so um, I'm from Dublin, and uh, I studied at University College Dublin, where I did my PhD. So I just moved here to New Zealand. It's just over two years ago now, actually. So some would say it was perfect timing based on what was about to happen um, to take up my current position, which is uh, the Eamon Cleary Chair of Irish Studies. And I co-direct a Centre for Irish and Scottish Studies here at the University of Otago, which is really wonderful, actually. So there's a huge Irish and Scottish heritage in, in this area, especially on the South Island and especially in, in Dunedin. Um, so before I moved here, I worked in Liverpool. So I kind of, in some ways, I think I've been following a track of the old Irish emigrant, you know. Um, I worked there at Liverpool Hope University, where I was head of history and politics. And um, in between, I've been very privileged, I think, to work in some of the leading Irish studies centres like the Keogh Norton at the University of Notre Dame and Irish studies at Concordia in Canada. So as well as, as like visiting fellowships in the Moore Institute and National University of Ireland in Galway. So I suppose my, I'm a historian, so it's Irish studies. So I, I do like to do interdisciplinary work. So I cross over. But um, I'm very, I'm a historian primarily, and I'm more focused on gender and sexuality, which of course led me to write this book on the history of marriage equality. Excellent. Um, 
So right from the get-go, you term this a social revolution. Will you tell us a little bit about what makes the marriage equality movement in particular a social revolution? Yeah, because um, what happened in, I suppose, when we think about the run-up before this, um, Ireland has been seen as a very conservative Catholic country. And certainly there was, I think most Irish people or anybody with an interest in Irish studies will accept the fact that there was a a church and state-led society. Referendums that came up, we can see certainly, especially in the 80s and the 90s, we would have in the church getting very involved in campaigns when it came to those really uh, social reform questions on, on issues of contraception, on divorce, on abortion. And the church very very much led what was happening. And you, you can see that even with the, you know, the divorce referendum initially in the 80s, that it was overwhelmingly voted against, you know. So before this as well, Ireland actually was the last country in what was then the European Economic Community, the EEC, that still had um, sexual activity between gay men as a criminal offence. That wasn't decriminalised until 1993, which was actually very late, even though there was a campaign, a very organised campaign since the 1970s for gay rights and later gay lesbian rights. So really, the 2015 is, for me, it, it looks as the first kind of marker where we can see the Irish people ultimately reject what the church was saying. In some instances, they were still that the hierarchy of the church was saying no to marriage equality, that it was undermining marriage, that this was a heterosexual institution. And so it was a marker, really. So we can look at that vote in 2015, which really significantly is the first time ever in the world that marriage has been extended to all through a public vote. And it was an overwhelming majority. But since that time, since the referendum in 2015, the the social reform in Ireland has moved in leaps and bounds. And we now have abortion legislated for the divorce is much more um, achievable and accessible because it was very rigid and restrictive before this. So it's opened up an entire new wave, actually, where people have realised they will vote in referendums in whatever way they see fit and it's in the interest of human rights i suppose rather than what the the catholic church has been saying so it's the kind of separation but it's it's led to a very big social reform and now i think actually we can kind of witness it even now when we look at europe uh, during the pandemic and the anti-vaccination movements We've got Ireland in a very different situation where there's the biggest take up of vaccinations and people have really moved forward with their with their thinking. Um, and it's just it's it's wonderful to see. It's really inspiring. You know, Ireland's yeah. actually leading their way now on human rights, which is which is wonderful. Yeah. Sort of shaking off that what Tom Inglis called was the habitus and ethos of Catholicism, that sort of oppressive regime. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Ireland voted yes in the marriage referendum in May 2015. There's no, this is not like a surprise. We're mm. spoiling the for you. But that made it less uh, one of less than 20 countries to legalize same-sex marriage at that time. So pretty, pretty as you said, ahead of its time. 
Today, we're at around 29 countries, according to the Human Rights Commission. But in Ireland, this was particularly significant because it was only 22 years, as you as you noted, since mm. sex between men was decriminalized and only really 40 years since an out gay person appeared on Irish television for the yeah. very first time. So yeah. will you tell us a little bit about that longer historical context of the gay rights movement and global LGBTQ activism? Yeah, so I suppose and you're right. I mean, it was the 1970s before we had you know, a gay man appear on Irish television, and that was David Norris. And David Norris is still very active, and very vocal in gay rights movements. And really, he kind of formed one of the, he was, he was the first person to really be out and the public face, if you like, to, and it's awful when, it's awful in a sense, when you think of what he had to actually do, because those kind of appearances on television where, you know, one of the interviews, he's saying, I'm not sick. Do I look sick? I'm not perverted. I'm not. So it was it was really dealing with the very basic idea that gay people, gay and lesbians were not sick people. They were not perverted people. Um, I think the movement was probably a little bit slower to get up and running because what tends to happen or tended to happen at the time in Ireland, certainly in the 70s, 80s and right into the 90s, was if there was a problem in Irish society and people felt outside of it, they emigrated. And generally speaking, they emigrated to England because that was the easiest route. You could just jump on a boat and you were over in Hollyhead and down, down to London. So we had a huge number of people that I think probably would have been very active uh, in campaigning again uh, against inequalities really in the movement that that simply moved because it was it was too difficult um, to just to engage with. And throughout the 80s, then there was a there's a couple of you know horrendous homophobic attacks. Uh, Declan Flynn. Um, in Fair, Fairview Park, that again, when these, even though there was a group of young teenagers that admitted what they had done, that they had gone gay bashing, and that Declan Flynn had been killed um, because he was gay, their their sentences and the judgment was just horrendous. It was, you know, it was more about the the individuals at the time that actually the judge saying these are good young men that have never convicted or been sentenced of a crime before and through that we end up which has happened in many countries as well that it's a it's a violent attack that starts the gay pride events and again it started with a marches to Fairview Park in honor of Declan Flynn and the gay pride in Ireland now is well obviously now not with the pandemic but um it's a huge event and I think that kind of signifies as well how it's changed because it's not just small bands of you know LGBT uh, plus people on the marches. There are community events where families and friends and people join in from the streets. So that kind of signifies what happens. But the um, the case to decriminalise was led by David Norris, and then we can see really. The heavy hitters of Irish Irish life, I think, that rode in to also support the first his first barrister and legal support being Mary Robinson, who of course later becomes president of Ireland, and later that was taken over by Mary McAleese, who also later became president of Ireland. So 
that kind of gives us an indicator as well of how Ireland was on its way to changing because if you're going to have women like these who are legal experts and who are dedicated to um, fighting injustices and decriminalising homosexuality in, in that first instance, and then the people of Ireland vote for them as, as president, we can see that the change was already underway in people's minds, you know. And I think that in itself, when we look at those campaigners and where they went to, that's kind of a key a key um, fact, really. Yeah. And obviously, David Norris launches the, the gay rights movement with a, a series of court cases that lead right up to the... the um, European Union Human Rights Court, yeah. and you identify some key court cases in the early history of the marriage equality movement. So um, how did those kinds of challenges to Irish law shape the movement's trajectory, do you think? The court cases that start, are, you talked about the um, Catherine and Anne Louise. So you've got um, Anne Louise uh, Gilligan and Catherine Sapone, who really, I think what they were doing, which was a, a very um, a very clever way of initiating it, that they were looking to what was happening in America and Canada and individual cases that had been set there. And certainly that's what had happened. So you had different states legislating for extension of marriage equality to same-sex couples through taking cases. And I think it was LAD uh, that were kind of involved and supported uh, of that. So... The, the couple who had been together for decades at that stage had decided that they would, um, they wanted to get married um, for obvious reasons, because that's what that, that's where their relationship was heading. Um, and they got married in Canada. And when they came back, this is what it initiated. First of all, they wrote to the tax office, the Inland Revenue, and asked for them to be uh, recognized as a married couple for tax purposes, and the the tax office in Ireland wrote back basically, well, a little bit of a, I think, a condescending letter of dear ladies, you know, we have a definition of marriage and it's between, and they took this definition from the Oxford English Dictionary to say a marriage is between a man and a woman and, and so on. And this is what initiated the very first case that it was them saying they wanted to have their marriage recognised, they had been legally married in Canada because they were both Irish citizens, but they were allowed as any citizens at the, at the time, they didn't have to be resident in Canada to get married. And that's what started it. Now, they had the idea of following a similar format that had happened in America and in Canada and getting other groups of people to do the same thing, that, we, that they would get a number of couples and that they would take a high profile case. That didn't come to play. And I think that, again, kind of gives us an idea of what was happening, I suppose, in Ireland in the background, that there was many couples that probably would have been supportive of taking case that just didn't live there anymore because they they, they had actually moved um, to, to different countries in order to be able to experience life fully as a, as a married couple or as a, even a, just an out couple. And there's also a lot of legislation in the background that really, I think, stopped people from going forward. So, for example, in the education system, if you um, if you worked for a Catholic school, well, a religious school, and the high majority of schools in Ireland are religious-run schools, therefore you couldn't contravene the church's teaching 
And therefore, you could actually, they could legally either not employ you or sack you if you were a gay man or a lesbian woman. So you have people in, and that just gives you an idea of one particular employment kind of background. So it gives you an idea of what would stop people from going forward. It all sounds wonderful that you can, you know, take a case with with Catherine and Anne Louise and um, go towards this case to see if you can get a, a marriage recognised for you. But it just wasn't feasible for so many people. And I think with Catherine and Anne Louise, they were in the situation that they had established themselves, that they worked for um, universities, that they, even though it was going to have an impact on them and, you know, socially as well as probably in their workplace, they weren't actually going to lose their job. So, you know, it was it was available to them to do that route. So those court cases happened and um, they lost their case. Uh, you know, that just didn't go forward. So it kept moving up um, and it went to the, you know, through the high court again, lost their case again. And that's really when they decide that um, this is, you know, this is, they need to look to a new campaign. And in the beginning, it was set up as the Cal campaign for the initials of the of the two women, Catherine and Anne Louise. And that very quickly turned into Yes Equality, which was for marriage equality. Yeah. Um, but before that happened, obviously, in 2007, the doll had started debating a civil partnership bill mm. um, right on the cusp of the collapse, of, you know, the economic crisis. But that raised questions of the constitutionality of civil unions and or possibly even marriage equality. So what were some of the big issues at stake in these debates and why was constitutionality constructed as a concern of the movement as it evolved? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great one because the, the Irish Constitution, which I'm pretty fascinated about because it's, uh, that is the, the basic law of Ireland, essentially. So if you have a country like Ireland that is relatively lo- young, if we think that it's only next year, in fact, that we'll be celebrating our centenary of the establishment of the Irish Free State and when you have a country that it becomes independent through revolution and rebellion in a, in a violent way, in a sense, that we got our independence, it will, it will generally be that there will be one written constitution. That is kind of the easiest way to set up the establishment of a state. And there was um, one constitution written in 1922 when it is formed in the Irish Free State. It was very short and, and covered very basic things. So we have the 1937 constitution, basically that legislates for everything. When it comes through, it, it, it stipulates how the government will run, how um, the different states of office work. But then we get into family and personal sections as well. And that was voted in in 1937 through a referendum. And every single change that has to be made to it or needs to, to, in order to change legislation regarding anything um, connected within that, a referendum has to be put forth to the people to change it. Now, the issue of marriage is an interesting one because it was written in 1937. It never stipulated that marriage was what the, what the Irish tax office had claimed between a man and a woman. That was never written into the constitution. It was a marriage. Um, and therefore... The debate at the beginning was, we don't actually need to change the terminology on this because you can just legislate. So you don't need to put it to a referendum. 
there's nothing in this to, to that needs to be inserted or, or wording changed. But of course, then the debate arose with constitutional lawyers saying, well, we have to look at the constitution for when it was written. And in 1937, nobody ever expected that two men or two women would want to be married. So we end up with all of these debates. And I think really it was, you know, on the the side of, yes, equality and LGBT uh, plus movements, it was that idea that actually if you do go towards a referendum and you put it to the people, that is the surest way of getting something introduced. It's also the biggest risk. And it really was a huge risk because to, and of course it wasn't down to the LGBT plus movement uh, or yes, equality as to how it would go. It was the government's call to make and and constitutional advisors um, to the government to decide on this. But it's certainly, and that's what they decided. And yes, equality were very happy with that at the time to put it to a public vote. But if you think about the implications of that, um, especially on young LGBT people in Ireland, if it hadn't been voted against, that was really, it was playing fundamentally with people's lives because emotionally that would have had an extreme impact. You've got a small country, you know, it's a relatively small population in Ireland. And, you know, certainly at the time there was young people saying that if the country votes, no, I don't know, am I going to walk down the street the next day and look at my neighbour and think, you you know you don't accept my relationship and you voted no and so it was a, it was a huge it was a huge chance um to take and although we had a situation of things like pollsters getting people's opinion well, how will you vote there's also the with something like marriage equality there is an incident where people will say when they're actually interviewed because they're too embarrassed to say I'm voting against it that they'll say yes I'm voting yes but you know, I, of course, I'm going to do that. It's in the interest of human rights. But when they go into the polling station, they vote no. So even the polls weren't able to tell us, you know, what was going to happen. So it was um, it was a really interesting one. But I think as well, there, the whole situation of the Constitution and updating the Constitution is um, really interesting because it's changed because there's an awareness that the Constitution is 1937 so many updates have to be made. So there is a citizens' assembly now that has been set up, which is 100 citizens that have been chosen at random, you know, supposedly to represent different age, sexuality, but how are you going to tell that, I suppose, Uh, gender, all of these things. And they will debate what happens and whether something goes forward for a referendum. So they were the ones that said, you know, yes, this needs to go for a referendum. And of course, in hindsight, it was the exact right thing to do. Some of my favorite stories from the book are in that chapter where you have the fellow who's walking out and the much older gentleman says, of course, of course you deserve this, right? Of course you deserve the same thing, the same way to express your love as as my kids or my, my family or I do. Um, so really a powerful chapter. Um, you, you juxtapose the 2013 Constitutional Convention with Pantygate in chapters seven and eight, which I think is really interesting. I think these are two, two moments which might be seen as opposite responses to Irish same-sex love and are really important for understanding the sort of mood or, or again, maybe that English's ethos and habitus in Ireland at the time. So will you tell us a little bit about each of these moments and how they fit into the history of the marriage equality movement? 
Yeah, it's, I mean, at this stage, 2013, the, the referendum hadn't been called, but like the movement was way up there and it was towards, in the background, what's happening is because there was a split, there was definitely a split in the movement over the idea of civil partnerships and uh, marriage. And eventually, eventually, by 2013, we could see everybody kind of falling into the idea of, you know, actually it's marriage equality and there is a support. So the momentum has now been gained. And in the midst of this, um, 2013 was the centenary of the Dublin lockout, that great big labour dispute where which saw over 20,000 workers locked out in, in Dublin. And um, they had they had gone back to the Abbey Theatre, which is the National Theatre, had gone back to producing what was a really wonderful way of doing it, the Call for Ireland, which used to happen originally in the Abbey. And different people from all walks of life would be invited up to do Ireland's Call, address the stage during the, the series of plays that was there for the centenary of, uh, of the lockout. And um, Rory O'Neill, who is also known by Panty, um, the, the drag and, and stage name of Panty was asked to do Ireland's Call and uh, Panty appeared on the Abbey stage in, in her full regalia and her call was essentially talking about how um, he, Rory O'Neill, when he's a man dressed normally, would check himself constantly because he was constantly being subjected to um, homophobic attack or abuse or just name calling or, you know, and he gives this really vivid account of standing waiting to cross the road when when a, a car drives by and it's somebody throws a milkshake, I think it is, on him. And he realizes, he starts checking himself and seeing what is it about him. It's a very emotive call and it really, it gained global attention, actually. You even have people like Madonna retweeting links to, to Rory O'Neill. And it gained a lot of attention at the right time, I think, when there was the idea of what about... So, you know, that idea that Irish, Irish people, people in Ireland, because they were gay or lesbian or trans, whatever issue um, of not being allowed to get married when marriage was and is the cornerstone of Irish society, especially still, and it's the basis of how the society kind of breaks down and operates, and to deny a whole band of people that was just inhumane, really, that it was denying an entire part of a family environment um, to be accepted in the same way. And that really gathered a huge amount of attention. And... I think really it was a pivotal moment for people in Ireland to understand, really to start thinking about it. Because even by 2013, I think there was a lot of Irish people still saying, well, I don't know anybody gay, you know. (laughs) Of course you know everybody, you know. But people still weren't kind of speaking about it as openly um, as they do now. And that that was definitely a key changer. And, of course, what we end up happening with um, Panty is that then he becomes centre in the movement because he is very vocal and he has always been very outspoken about gay rights and about various campaigns. And in the run-up to the campaign for marriage equality, he was interviewed on um, on an RTE or a radio television, um, national television programme and talked about 
particularly named a couple of journalists who were homophobic and organizations. And that started again, that started, it put him at the center of something that he didn't realize what would happen because they, the journalists then sued RTE and RTE used taxpayers' money. People pay a television license in Ireland and they use that license money to pay these people off without it going to court or anything. And I think that actually garnered such massive support for gay rights in Ireland at the time that it was extraordinary because people were absolutely disgusted that actually you're protecting somebody because it's okay to say something bad about somebody for being homosexual, but it's not okay to actually call somebody homophobic. So it really turns the tables. And so what we have is between that 2013 and then the run up to what became Pantygate with this uh, issue, there was such an amazing um, garnering of support because the marriage equality campaign was not a gay rights movement by the campaign by the time it happened. It was being run and led by, you know, supporters, by just mothers and fathers and children and brothers and friends and people who didn't even weren't even that close with with LGBT people. It was extraordinary. It was a social reform campaign and people had just had enough of it. And I think it was that idea that, you know, for somebody like uh, Panty to get involved and to first of all talk about what it's like to be gay in Ireland, the reality of it, and then to get to the stage of being so downtrodden by just naming people as being homophobic for attacks that they had made on him. Um, that was really significant and the people in Ireland just had enough, you know. So by the time the marriage equality referendum comes along, people are thinking that's it. You know, this is, this is how we move forward. Yeah. And you mentioned sort of two kind of key arms, I think, of of the marriage equality movement, right? You have social media being this major tool to get the word out and to gain momentum, but also a sort of, I don't know, a very Irish thing where, you know, having having folks call their moms, call their grandmas, call their dads, right? And sort of use that kind of, 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 of momentum in, in a completely, you know, a very, very, I don't know, um, analog way compared to the digital social media way. So we talk a little bit about those two arms of this movement and how they are sort of representative of the movement and maybe even as a 21st century sort of Irish movement. Yeah, the, the social media became um, extremely important, possibly more important from an Irish context, I think, than it would have in many other countries because it was actually, it connected emigrants abroad. And of course, as we all know, there if, you know, if every Irish person moved home tomorrow, I think the, the Ireland would probably sink, you know, there's so many of us abroad. And, but there's a huge, there's emigration now, of course, is very different. It's not like, you know, we're, we're not going back to the 1840s and 1850s where people were getting on a boat and going to America and Canada never to return. Um, and we also have waves of, of emigrants. And, and of course, I, I meet people here as well. It's the same that they're, they're younger, they come away and they move away for, for maybe two years, five years. And their intention is always to move back to Ireland. And they're very connected with Ireland and they're very connected with what happens. 
and they want to stay involved. And the social media um, very quickly picked up on this that and different movements started um, tre- trending on Twitter, first of all, with home to uh, the boat, home to vote and the boat to vote. There was various ones that was calling on emigrants, especially in England and across the UK, to get the boat back. And people were starting to organise coaches to get people up to Hollyhead and onto the boat so that they could come back in order to vote. But that, because it took off so well on social media and because people started, and I was certainly, um, I was doing talks over in England about the marriage equality referendum. So there was people like this and it was, you know, it just spread. But by the time of the actual vote, it was astounding. There was people coming back from Australia and New Zealand, from America, from Canada. There was people coming. It was just unbelievable. We also had a situation where even those Irish emigrants who at that stage had lost their vote and weren't entitled to vote were then, if they could afford to pay for somebody's flight that was Irish going back to vote, they were paying for people's flight. So therefore, they were saying, you know, take my vote, essentially. It was... It was absolutely extraordinary, actually. Um, and you could certainly see it. I came back from from Liverpool to go to vote. And it was like a party atmosphere. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I got into John Lennon Airport and it, I was wearing my my tall, yes, yes badge. And people on the plane were like, oh, great, you're going back to vote and you're voting. Yeah. And like considerably more English people on the plane at that stage and they knew what was happening and they were delighted that they were going to be in Dublin that weekend because people could foretell that this was going to be a momentous weekend but again in the airport in Dublin airport it was literally a party atmosphere to arrive into there was people with balloons there was banners there was you know big celebrations as people were arriving in to vote so social media became really important and also opened the way for younger, uh, really um, invigorated campaigners to get involved, people who, you know, weren't even maybe in Ireland at the time. The other aspect, I think, was that kind of, and what you're talking about, I think, as well, is the personal stories of people. And this, this is something, I think, that has since changed political campaigning in Ireland, actually, which is also part of the, the reform movement, that it was realised quite quickly, that that idea of, well, I don't know a gay person, you know, that actually people were quite convinced in some cases that they didn't or that people hadn't spoken to them about their relationships. And it was done through the campaign really followed the route of telling people's personal stories because it's very difficult to listen to a couple who have been together for, like um, Anne-Louise Gilligan and Catherine Zappone, here you have this very non-offensive, uh, lovely couple who have been together for decades and was well, sadly on Louise has, has since passed away, but who weren't being given the um, the right to get married. And it's it's very difficult to look at individual cases like that and say, no, yeah, I should be allowed to get married to a man, but you shouldn't be allowed to get married to the... So it was all of these issues. And then, of course, it, it ran that people, it wasn't just the people themselves, it was their mothers, their grandmothers, their fathers. their, And these were um, the stories that were being told. And that was very powerful because they weren't gay people and they were talking about the impact that it was having on their lives. And we had politicians coming out um, 
we had Leo Vradker, who is now um, Tánaiste and was Taoiseach of the country, of course, but was Minister of Health at the time. And he came out as a gay man. But it wasn't so much his story. It was his father's story. So then his father started campaigning. You also had um, people who were very religious. And I think this was key, who had gay and lesbian children. Um, Mary McAleese as well, her son. So you had people who were very religious as well and talking about their um, the impact on their lives and how, you know, it their their children should be allowed to marry. And I think that was extremely powerful. And I say that was part of the different change because that's also what happened in the repeal the Eighth Amendment in the last referendum, which finally repealed that horrible insertion into the Constitution um, prohibiting abortions. And that was done in the same way. The campaigners used the same thing, personal stories. It was personal accounts of how this had affected people. So um, quite different and and a, possibly a very Irish way to do things and possibly an easier way to do things in Ireland because it is a smaller country. So it worked very well. Yeah, I'm not certain that it would work in other other larger countries, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In the last quarter of the book, you you tackle the referendum itself, obviously, the Yes Equality Group that advocated for folks to vote yes once the referendum was scheduled, the televised debates with various representatives from the no side, especially the Catholic Church hierarchy, though not necessarily individual priests. I think Mm. you point to a number who came out against the official position to support the yes vote, which was really important. Mm. Um, And then the, the tense hours of the vote and the count and then the surprising to some results. We know, of course, that the referendum passed and the marriage equality won the day, but but why did they win? And and what does the success of this campaign tell us about Ireland? Really, it was a campaign about equality. It's plain and simple. It wasn't about sexuality. It wasn't about anything. It was literally about equality. And that changed very quickly when we could see mothers and fathers and grandparents getting involved it was like they took the ball and they ran with it, you know. And although there was LGBT people clearly, you know, very involved in the campaign and running it from the background, it it was very quickly just about equality, that this was simply not right, that you're excluding an entire band of people from accessing what we or what people in Ireland are saying is really important, um, that basis of, of, of a family. And... That it, to me, that's what it was. It was just plain and simple, and you could see it. Um, and you could see it with the accounts of even the way it was being discussed at the time. That sexuality no longer the only people who were speaking about sexuality was the no campaigners that were kind of focusing on is this wrong? Is this right? That actually all stopped, you know, and people just weren't interested. It was it was love is love, you know. Um, and it was very, yeah, it was it was very plain, and it really did come. And I'm trying to remember what one of the slogans was. It was something about Graw being the Irish for love, um, and it was it, it was literally about love, and that was it. So it was a, it was wonderful to see that, and there was a kickback to the Catholic Church as well. And like you say, there was, you know, I I was very interested in the stories because there were so many of them of priests who stood up on the pulpit and said this is the humane right thing to do and 
it wasn't going to affect how the church was being run. Nobody's expecting to walk into a Catholic church and say, right, I want to get married to my girlfriend. We know that's not going to happen. And that's fine. We don't need it. Um, Well, I mean, I suppose some people might want it. However, it was there was a lot of priests and and nuns and and people high up in the church saying there was even one priest in in North County Dublin who came out as a gay man on the pulpit and he got a standing ovation from the congregation. You know, it was extraordinary. And really, there was that idea as well that actually this is not what the Catholic Church should be about, that it is should be about love, that it should be about equality. And it was, I think it was partly a message to the hierarchy and they certainly got that message. And, you know, it, it was announced very shortly after the results came true that they realised that the Catholic Church in Ireland need to, needed to take a stock take, essentially, to really see where they were going and how they were, they were handling this. Because what was coming from the hierarchy and the official messages were were not good. And when they were read from, as in the bishop's letters from the, from the pulpit to say vote no or against marriage equality, people were walking out of the, the congregation. So, you know, they it really gave them a bit of a wake up call, I think. Quite a different experience from what we saw in the 1980s and 1990s, mm. certainly. Absolutely. We discussed this a little bit already, but I'm hoping that we can circle back to it. Um, the sort of global context of marriage equality. So where does Ireland's efforts to legalize same-sex marriage fit into that global context? And how do you think marriage equality fits into this longer history of the Irish gay rights movement? Yeah, I think from the global context, I mean, we have the other country that kind of shook up people's idea was Spain. You know, Spain was one of the first countries to to introduce marriage equality, very Catholic, seen as as a conservative country as well. But that was still different because that was legislated for through their government. The Irish, um, the Irish situation shook up a lot of people, and especially people, especially countries that had um, that have, I should say, a history of Irish emigration or a lot of Irish heritage. And one of those was Australia, and we can see very quickly the impact that it had in Australia because the uh, government were. Essentially, I, I I would say, I'd be happy to say that they were afraid to legislate for it. And then, of course, once the Irish uh, referendum happens, it starts being debated then in, in their government. And opposition sides are calling on the, on the government to say, but look, if you know the people of Ireland want to bring this in, why can't you legislate for it? So you see Australia then doing something that was, it, it was laughable in some senses because it meant nothing. Um, legally speaking, but they were trying to ape an Irish context and they did a postal vote to find out how many people in Australia. And of course, every Irish person has relatives in Australia. So of course, we were on to everybody going, yeah, what are you doing and what's happening? And this was basically to see it wasn't a legal vote, so it wasn't going to change the law, but um, they wanted to get people's opinion. And once they got people's opinion through this post of vote, then they brought in uh, marriage equality as well. So you can definitely see that it is having it did have an impact and it did kind of spin off. So I think it's the idea that although other countries were legislating for it, the fact of a public vote being so overwhelming and the fact that it was Ireland 
really kind of shook up um, many other countries. And it, it, that certainly helped. I think also the campaign and the method of campaigning was quite different. And that certainly had an impact on other campaign activists too. So this is quite, this is quite key. From an Irish context, when it comes to um, LGBT rights, it's, um, I mean, it's an overwhelming difference. It's a game changer entirely. There is, we can't say that Ireland now has no homophobia, but we can't say that about any country. But certainly it is not acceptable to be homophobic. It's not acceptable to make homophobic slurs. It's so from a social perspective. Um you know, we have all of that. And and just to kind of give you a sense as well, I mean, you know, after this came in, I married my now wife and we had a big wedding reception in Dublin with her family and my family. And we both wore our white dresses and our families were ecstatic. And there wasn't one incidence of somebody saying they weren't coming to the wedding or not being supportive it was perhaps even more an emotional event than uh, than a heterosexual wedding at the time because people were just so delighted that this was the result, I suppose, of their yes votes, you know. So I think these things have, have changed how families are viewed. You know, it's that idea that at the wedding people were saying to us, when are you going to have children? You, that question never would have been asked before. You know, it's kind of it was the idea that, well, gays and lesbians will never have kids. They'll never have a family. So it's changed the perception in Ireland. And that is that's a fundamental thing that can never go backwards. You know, it can also where you have, you know, and we've seen it in different states in America as well, where there will be um, moves to kind of roll back on legislation or, you know, after marriage equality has been introduced in a state that legislate now against it. That can never happen unless it goes to a referendum in Ireland. That's the only way you change that law now. And the odds of it going to a referendum are very slim. And because it was so overwhelmingly voted in, the odds of it being changed. So that in itself has given um, Irish LGBT people a very different position in Irish society and a very different acceptance within Irish society. So now that this social revolution has taken place, mm. what do you think is on the horizon in terms of other issues that are still in need of being addressed that this moment will have, have an impact on? I think, I mean, the first one that I was very conscious of um you know, as an Irish person, I'm always very conscious of the entire of Ireland and the and Northern Ireland is always a concern. And I ended the book with, with an afterword because at the time, um, marriage equality had still not been legislated for in Northern Ireland. And, you know, this is kind of a very difficult, very difficult situation because um, it, at that stage across all of the rest of the UK, Northern Ireland still being under the remit of the UK, still hadn't legislated. So now you had six counties in Ulster not having marriage equality. And I think that was kind of a key, a, a, another game changer, because now it's only in the last year that it has been legislated. It was pushed through Westminster because it, it couldn't go through in, in Stormont at the time. And actually, um, the 13th of January in 2020 was the first um, marriage between a same-sex couple um, 
that happened. And that, well, it was in February they actually got married. And I would still be kind of looking at the idea of um, bringing the North and the Republic of Ireland into the same alliances when it comes to especially human rights issues. And we can also see that when it comes to um, abortion, we had the repeal the eighth. And once that was actually repealed, the campaigners were saying the North is next, you know, and I and I think that's kind of a very special thing, regardless of somebody's concerns or beliefs or whether they want to reunite in Ireland or not. I think everybody is under that kind of singing from the same hymn sheet to say that we would at least like to have the same human rights laws across the island, you know, because that's right and that's fair. And I think this campaign for marriage equality saw the beginning of that and that's moved forward. And when we got to the repeal of the eighth, it's the same thing. It's kind of like we can't leave the women in the north behind. This all needs to move forward. And I think that's what I'd like to see And because you can see it happening so much more. Campaigners on these kind of issues working together north and south of that non-existent border. But, you know, um, and I think that's probably a, a key way forward, actually, as well. Yeah. That's excellent. Well, thank you so much, Sonia. I think we've we've taken about enough of your time today. But before uh, we let you go, will you tell us what's next for you? What what projects are you working on now? Yeah, so I'm actually working on a couple of of, um, of books. One of them is um, an edited volume on the Irish in New Zealand. So that's stemming from a series that I organized over here through a Toy Two Settlers Museum. And there was a series of 10 uh, talks. It, it actually lasted for 18 months. So it was a year and a half of my life that this went through. But it, it was uh, excellent. And there was um, really key scholars here who uh, gave talks on, uh, did research on individuals, Irish individuals who came over to New Zealand and settled and had an impact on changing New Zealand in some way. So uh, starting work on that volume but the, the next kind of big book is nearing the final stages, um, which is on the essentially feminist campaigners in Ireland. And it's from it starts with Anna Parnell and it goes right up to 2021 and uh, debates of, of earlier this year. So that's due in. So that I'm working on that for UCD Press, University College Dublin Press, and hopefully that should be out before Christmas. So I'm just working on the final aspects, but it's basically tracking um, these feminist campaigners through. Well, I wouldn't even say they're all feminist. Some of the female is probably better to say through their speeches and giving kind of context of very significant speeches that they've done. So there are things like um, the uh, the original. The original Eighth Amendment campaign, for example, is in there, the divorce referendum, all of these issues. But through some also very interesting ones as well, I think, about how women like A.G. Roach have worked for uh, the children of the Chernobyl disaster. So that's the uh, that's the current one, which is I have about four weeks left to finish writing that. So, um, yeah, pretty bogged down with writing that one at the moment. Well, I'm sure we'll look forward to having you back on the show to talk about that one. Excellent. Great. Well, I look forward to it. Yeah, Sonia, thanks so much for being on the show with us today. We really appreciate your time. Great. Thank you, April. It was a pleasure.
Yeah, folks, after you subscribe to the New Books Network and Irish Studies channel, hop on over to my other podcast, Dig a History Podcast. I have an episode about the Yes Equality Movement as well with Sonia's book as the central source for my episode. You can check it out at digpodcast.org or find us on your favorite podcast catcher. Well, thank you all for joining us today and we will catch you next time. Bye-bye.